hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting special holiday edition of the Midnight Mass podcast. It's your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and I'm here with my trusty co-host. No, it's not Robin. It's the one, it's the only, it's Michael Verratti. Hello, hello, Peaches. And you know the old holiday saying about mistletoe and how it can be deadly if you eat it. (laughs) Well, yes, exactly. And I am excited because we have tried to do a special holiday edition of the Midnight Mass podcast every year. And um, was it last year that it was Hellraiser? Or no, last year was Black Christmas, where we last were joined year was Black Christmas, okay, by none other than Lynn Griffin, star of Black Christmas. Right. Well, there's, I mean, that's a perfect, perfect choice. And the year before that, it was a little more outside of the box. It was like sort of a very Cinnabite Christmas, and we actually had Cinnabites on the podcast. Yeah, and outside of the box, pun intended, of course. Um, <laughs> but as far as holiday movies go, and thinking outside of the box, this is one that both Peaches and I really love and have been dis- discussing for a while and is very much in demand from listeners. We've had listeners ask for this movie quite a bit. So probably without further ado, I should tell the folks what we're talking about today. Please do. We are talking about 1992's Batman Returns, directed by Tim Burton and written by Daniel Waters, starring, of course, Michael Keaton, Danny DeVito, Michelle Pfeiffer, Christopher Walken, Michael Goff, Pat Hingle, clowns, cats, and the very much in danger firstborn sons of Gotham. That's right. We are headed to Gotham City for the holidays, and I could not be more excited. I love this movie. I love it as a Christmas movie. This is the perfect choice for us. And we've saved it. We actually knew we were going to do this, but saved it for the final podcast of the year so that it would come out just before Christmas and be our holiday movie. I thought it was worth noting that this isn't the first Tim Burton film we've done. So it's not only part of our series of holiday podcasts we've done with things that are holiday movies like Black Christmas or maybe not like Hellraiser, but we managed to make that episode work despite the fact that it's Hellraiser. But I thought it was worth noting that we have done a podcast on Ed Wood, Uh, which is definitely an important and crucial Tim Burton film. And this is our next episode by Tim Burton. What's funny to me is how much we celebrate Tim Burton in this episode. We celebrate the icons of the films. But there's something interesting about this movie being a sequel and being part of a giant series. But we really do focus in on this movie and why we love this movie. As we get into with one of our guests, Tim Burton very much is the secret sauce here. As Ew. <laughs> But I think that there's also this thing when you think of cult cinema and the kind of movies we usually celebrate, it's often the underdog. But Batman Returns was not an underdog movie. This was a huge box office success. In fact, it exceeded the uh, earnings of the original 1989 Batman movie. But because of the transgressive elements of it, the fact that Tim Burton managed to inject such horror and German expressionism and uh, gothic scenery in a movie that was marketed to the masses. It was a fundamental shift, I think, for a whole generation who this was not the Batman they knew. This was not the colorful, campy Adam West of yesteryear. This was a whole different beast that was also a little bit of a horror film that also kind of unlocked maybe a hidden forbidden sexuality that 
we weren't even ready to talk about as kids that over the years has grown and grown and grown. And so what's great about this is this is one of those cult films that was successful because of its ties to a monolithic character and franchise, but became cult because of all the other elements that exist in it in spite of its pop culture leanings. Absolutely. And if it's not obvious enough, we are the Midnight Mass podcast. We are doing Batman Returns. So there will be a lot of discussion around the Catwoman of it all. But we will not limit that discussion to just this show. Michael and Brendan are going to be featured on a special Midnight Mini Mass all about the movie Catwoman. But, you know, Catwoman probably beyond the movie. You know, we, I hope that you both discuss the Eartha Kitt of it all, the Halle Berry, the, you know, you'll, you'll have to get into it all. I, um, unfortunately, I'm not going to be joining you. However, the listeners, you should check out that mini mass. And if you don't know what a mini mass is, those are our sideshows, if you will, that are available to our Patreon subscribers, the supporters of the Midnight Mass podcast. They get access to these special extra episodes and we'll be having one all about Catwoman. While Peaches is away in London for her big performance at the Royal Albert Hall, Brendan and I are here stateside and sticking around Gotham City. And you know what's interesting, obviously, is Michelle Pfeiffer was so groundbreaking as Catwoman that a whole generation and generations since continue to talk about it. And it did lead to the creation of the movie starring Halle Berry, which I admittedly had never seen until a couple weeks ago. And uh, when we watched it, I said, to Brendan, you know what, we're doing Batman Returns on Midnight Mass, and you should join me to talk about this movie as well as sort of the ongoing legacy of Catwoman on screen. And so uh, Brendan and I teamed up, and we're talking all about Halle Berry. Yes, Eartha Kitt gets mentioned, and we dig into the fact that Sharon Stone makes her comic book villainess debut. It is definitely a good companion piece to what we're about to talk about today. Check that out. Subscribe to our Patreon. We can't thank you subscribers enough. But first, we are here to dig into one of two of our giant in-depth interviews. Our first guest is a friend of mine and someone I really uh, respect and appreciate. He has written actual books on movies and is also genuinely British. And we were really thrilled to have him come on. So, of course, we are going to dig in to the queerness of it all, the goth of it all, the Michelle Pfeiffer of it all. Without further ado, let's hear it for writer Mark O'Connell. Oh, 
Welcome back, listeners. This next guest is a personal friend and a thrill for me to introduce. He is best known as being, I think, the preeminent expert on all things James Bond. In fact, he is such an expert that he's written a book about it and appeared in many, many documentaries. His debut book, Catching Bullets, Memoirs of a Bond Fan, has been out for years, and it is fabulous and a must-read for any Bond fan. His follow-up book is actually my personal favorite because it plays on all of my obsessions as an 80s child. It's called Catching Bullets, Watching Skies, Star Wars, Spielberg, and Us. But he has fabulous taste in all things movies, including cult movies, and the one, of course, we're discussing here today. We are mutual friends with Michael Johnstone and David Falk, better known as Mrs. Vera and Mr. Tina, the stars of the Vera Sphere documentary who live across the hall from me. So I actually know him personally as someone who visits San Francisco pretty much annually, as far as I know. And I sometimes see him in England. So without further ado, let's hear it for the writer, the author, the fantastic Bond fan himself. It's Marco Cottle. Yay. Holy holidays back, people, which is a line I wrote down here. I thought, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm going to stop doing Americanisms. I'm more Alfred the Butler than Burt Ward. So, but hello, that's that's an amazing introduction. I, I'm going to hang um, up now and you just leave that in. Yeah. <laughs> we always start at the beginning and someday we probably will do one of the Bond films and we'll have to have you back. But mm. today, as you've already alluded to, we have a special holiday episode of the Midnight Mass podcast where we are discussing perhaps the most goth Christmas movie ever made. It's our favorite, Batman Returns. Now, when did you first discover this film and why do you love it? I saw this film because the first film was a really big event in my movie childhood, August 89. So, you know, three summers later, I remember seeing it. And in fact, I've looked it up. I saw it on the opening Friday here. So I saw it July the 10th, 92. I think I just finished my GCSEs, which were like the the sort of standard exams that we all have to do when you sort of hit 15 or 16. So I got them out of the way. And I remember seeing it with my friend Greg and a couple of others in the middle of quite a hot summer, which was weird because it was all just sort of Burbank snow and uh, Christmas candy canes. And I loved it. I, I loved it because it was a real sick retreat into uh, Tim Burton's mind, which I think he kind of kept at bay in Batman 89. Learning about the work that you do and the books that you write, kind of the crossover between popular franchises and cult cinema, this is a great example because in terms of characters, there are few that are more monolithic than Batman. And yet this film definitely is cult. And one of the things that I'm really interested about, and I've been thinking about this since this movie really really weaseled its way into my life is does it work for us because it's a good Batman movie or because it's a good Tim Burton movie and I think that there's an argument to be made for both because I think that with a character like Batman you have this thing where every creator who comes to the character brings a little of themselves and thus the character changes it's malleable mythology you know Adam West Batman is not Frank Miller Batman is not Darwin Cook Batman and here we get Tim Burton unfiltered in ways that he didn't even get to do in 89. And I think that that's a really important thing to dig into up top. Do you think this works for cult fans because it's Batman or because it's Tim Burton or an amalgamation of both? 
Well, I was watching it again a couple of nights ago um, with a pal and my husband, and we were kind of looking at it with that exact question in our mind. And we kind of felt in a horribly dull way. It straddles both and maybe doesn't quite sit in both camp totally 100% successfully. But that's mm. also why it has loads of quirks and kooky things that we all have grown to love. What I like about it is that it is a real Tim Burton film. It was his fifth film. And you can you know, really look into Batman 89 and say, yes, this was Tim Burton, that was Tim Burton. But here, even the fact that they just shoot inside and ev- all the interiors are actually, yeah, the exteriors are all interiors at Burbank on the Warner Brothers lot. It has a real Tim Burton artifice about it, which the first film didn't. In fact, the first film was shot not that far away down the road here from me in um, south of England. And it, was, it used Pinewood Studios and various sort of industrial factories. And I believe Burton wanted to get away from that for the second one. He was a bit, I think his phrase was, it's getting too Britishy. And I must admit, what I did love about <laughs> When I watched Batman Returns again the other night, I went, oh, isn't it nice that all the extras are not people that were just in all our sort of hospital dramas as a kid? Because <laughs> that's all, it's like, oh yeah, he was in that school thing and that he was in that pop video. So it was actually quite nice to see Americans in a Batman film, who knew? Maybe to give you a little better answer, it is definitely a Tim Burton film. It's got those candy cane stripes of Beetlejuice. It's got that sort of dirt about it. You know, from the get-go, it's a horror movie. We've got the horror birth and the the big Danny Elfman choirs and that that sort of gothic artifice and the idea that the sets are the models. Yeah, and we're not pretending that they're actually real scale, which is a real Beetlejuice thing. Yeah, with that, I, I vaguely remember Beetlejuice opens with a sort of train set model world, and yeah. uh, this this Batman does that. So already we're not we're not pretending it's anything other than and Tim Burton's take on the whole thing. As a Batman movie, maybe we'll go there a bit later, but I feel it it drops the bat ball slightly. For example, Michael Keaton doesn't have any dialogue till about the 34th minute, just about. I mean, he does a bit of driving, but he's not in it much. Um, and that's not a fault. You know, Superman with Christopher Reeve, they did similar, kept him at bay slightly. So yeah, I, I feel it's more of a Tim Burton film and I can go into that at great length as well. I don't really care about superheroes and haven't really been a big comic book person, which I know is crazy for uh, a lot of cult movie fans to hear someone say that. It's just not the way that my nerd brain manifested. So I was interested in the first Batman because of Jack Nicholson, quite frankly, like that really excited me because, you know, I love Jack Nicholson and I was a kid. I was actually working at a multiplex movie theater and I agree. It was a huge, huge event film and it was exciting, but it was Batman Returns that actually sold me on not just Batman. I didn't care about Batman on the idea that I could love a Batman movie earnestly yeah, and it could become one of my favorite films despite the fact that it's a Batman movie, because I didn't care about Batman. I didn't care about that stuff. I mean, I knew who Catwoman was. I knew who the Penguin was. But the way that these characters were brought to life in this film specifically, to me, is a win because it's a Tim Burton movie. Perhaps, actually, one could argue, maybe the most Tim Burton of Tim Burton movies. I feel like it is so unapologetically goth. It is so mm-hmm. over the top and it's yeah. just so bleak and dark and fierce and funny. And its sense mm. of humor is wicked. But one of the things I noticed when I rewatched it, I hadn't put two and two together until my rewatch that Daniel Waters is the screenwriter of this film. And I thought to myself, holy shit, not only is it the most Tim Burton 
Batman movie, maybe the most Tim Burton movie movie. We can talk about that a little bit later. But Daniel Waters wrote this movie. And for those of you who don't know, Daniel Waters is the writer of Heather's, perhaps Mm. one of the best written movies ever in the history of screenwriting. So I'm wondering, how much do you think that collaboration plays into our love of this movie? Daniel Waters as writer and Tim Burton, you know, coming back to direct. He also did Hudson Hawk, which... Yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did. Daniel Waters did a number of movies, but I think, yes, you're right. The most... Yeah, yeah. Hudson Hawk would be an interesting one to tackle someday, but... I agree. Yeah. The writer, one of the main writers of the previous film was a guy called Sam, Sam Ham, and I, just from doing a little bit of reading and digging... Sam in, in Ham? His, His name was Sam, Sam Ham. Ham. Yeah, that's what I've got on my notes Like, here, Sam, like a Sam Dr. Ham. Seuss character, okay. Yeah, totally, totally. I found a old Premier magazine. Remember the Premier movie oh, magazine? Oh, yeah. yeah. I was, I, I found one like the, the the week you asked me to uh, guest on this show and I, in my loft because we were moving house and it was it was fascinating to read it and I was reading over it again today and I get this impression that Burton got the writer he wanted with Daniel Waters Sam Ham might have been a little bit of a um a sort of studio insistence at the time so he managed to get the writer he wanted who then brought the tone he wanted and didn't you know and, and allowed him to do this sort of fucked up baroque boneyard Frankenstein with Christmas lights world. And yes, he brings that that sort of Heather's sensibility slightly to it. I do think as a script, it, it can be stronger. I mean, you can say that about many a film. Um, that whole sense of duality, you know, the teaser poster was the bat, the cat, the penguin, and all three of them sort of share the same space of we've become an animal to hide who we really are because our parents left us at an early age and were horrible to us and all of that. Um, it's a bit on the bat nose there. I really, really like what particularly um, Daniel Waters does with Catwoman, Selena Kyle. Mm. Uh, and he he was apparently one of the things he was meant to go on to write, and he he spent time drafting, was that there was lots of ill-fated versions of Catwoman. One was the Halle Berry version that got made, but they tried different carnations as well to really cash in on that. You know, banking on the Eartha Kit, Lee Merriweather um, sort of cult status, which became a major casting um fever for Catwoman in uh, 92 Batman Returns that you know it was famously it was going to be Annette Bening but um Warren Beatty got her pregnant so she couldn't do it at the end they looked at Jennifer Jason Leigh uh Ellen Barkin and Sean Young as well I mean do you remember the Sean Young thing when she'd go on chat shows dressed as Catwoman and Famously. I forgot <laughs> about that. She kind of yeah. campaigned for herself, huh? Yeah, she rocked up at the um at the studio lots whilst they were shooting, and it was all <laughs> yeah. And I'm wow. here, like we've kind of got someone else, and it was Amazing. all a bit awkward. And she, yeah, again, if you read any articles at the time, she was. It's because she was meant to be Vicky Vale in Batman, but she had a um, I think it was a riding accident. Um, she fell off a yeah. horse, so she couldn't do that. So I I can understand she really had that bat thing. She, you know, she couldn't uh, enter the Batcave in any way. But um, what I really like about the film, I was just sort of thinking about it today, but we've got two leads. We've got Batman and Catwoman who don their rubber fetish play gear and head out at night. And that's why I like it. Maybe I've become a little, I've, like you say, maybe I've been to San Francisco a little bit too much. I start it, it, to know. It's annual, to, right? Can it's, be, yeah. It's an, you come annually, I mean, annually, I come, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, sometimes I've come twice in one year. Um, <laughs> Only but, um, twice. But I love, and I've got a note here. I'm not going to pretend I've just thought it, although I did think it earlier. She's, what I love about uh, Selena Kyle, she's like a Dory Alley cat. So that's a San Francisco <laughs> reference there. All the um, the stitching on her, particularly on her head mask, it almost looks like maggots. It looks gross. Yeah. And it has that sort of Frank and weenie 
yeah. Victor quality, you know, uh, I was like, oh, this is, I mean, again, that's what I mean. It's a, it's way more of a Tim Burton film. When you look at Joker and, and Jack Nicholson in 89, I didn't feel, whilst he's brilliant, he's totally amazing, that didn't feel like a Tim Burton Joker design, whereas this does feel like uh, Tim Burton's Penguin, Tim Burton's Catwoman. Mm. Well, taking it back to when you mentioned that Batman doesn't really speak until almost a half hour into the film or over a half hour into the film, mm. I think it's inevitable, of course, in discussing this movie generally, but especially here on this podcast where we celebrate otherness and queerness, that we would get to Catwoman pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that what, for me, makes a Batman movie, and maybe this is the film that kind of set the mold of this, is the strength of the villains. Mm. We know who Batman is. He's sort of, in many ways, the straight man to his own story. It's the strength of the villains that always make the movie. And this movie works because it's not really about him. It's about them. Mm. And I'm really interested in sort of that in terms of going back to what Peach has said, maybe the most Tim Burton of all Tim Burton movies, because these are two truly misfit characters that he unapologetically presents as misfits, Mm. but celebrates their otherness. We make a lot of Catwoman, but I think that DeVito's performance here as Penguin is also one of the most crucial aspects of this film. And it's the most Waters thing as well, because that's JD and Heather's kind of really like, what's the plan? Let's deconstruct the society that rejected me. Mm. And so I'm wondering what your take on the penguin is because Catwoman gets remarked upon a lot, especially mm-hmm. in queer spaces. But I want to talk about the penguin. Originally, it was good. They were trying to get Burgess Meredith to play his father, and that, and that didn't happen. So I love from the get go that it's Paul Rubens, and I can't remember the actress's name, but they were both in Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Diane something. She plays uh, Simone, yeah. famously Au Revoir Simone in Pee Wee. I forget her name as well, but our, she was in a friend uh, of ours. Darren Stein's film. Oh God, I can't remember her name. It's going to drive me nuts, but she's lovely. And yes, Mm. to see the two of them together right at the beginning was such a great nod to Pee Wee's Big Adventure. What I love about DeVito is he he goes there. I mean, I don't think you'd get an interpretation of of a comic book villain like this. Now we've got Colin Farrell in a suit in that slightly three hour depressing tone of a Batman movie that was last year's the batman and all they do with colin farrell is at the end he gets his feet tied together by the police that has to do the burgess meredith waddle i was like is really is that all you're giving us a penguin you know (laughs) um so we we get the full danny devito and he's you'd never get a villain or a penguin like this now he he's really quite i don't know if kinky's the right word but he's that he's kind of desperate for women they present him as he's 33 and I'm like, oh, is, is that a Jesus thing? Are we going like, you know, he's just come to save Gotham, but he's he's terrible around women. He's got no barriers. And that watching that now is like, oh, it's kind of gross. And I think it was DeVito that came up with the idea to have that blue dye coming out of the corner of his mouth when he's getting a little sick and twisted. I mean, you look at it and the hair is gross and he's got that waddle. I think someone said at the time he looked like a, a striped testicle or something. I mean, yeah, <laughs> he sort of looks like that. So I love it. There's too much going on. It's do you want to be the mayor? Do you want to rise to power? Do you want to get revenge on your parents? And then there's this thing of let's take all the newborns of Gotham. And it's kind of uh, that's an extra beat that wasn't necessary. And then you have that scene with him and Michelle Pfeiffer where she famously put the bird in her mouth and regrets it because she could could have ended up dying. And there's a weird awkwardness to that scene. I don't know if you've seen the film recently, but they have this 
It's almost like a rehearsal scene. It's something's not right about that scene. And that, I, I kind of like it for that because Pfeiffer looks like someone's had an argument with her, you know, a second before the camera rolls. There's something's not right about that scene. But you've got DeVito just, like I say, this striped testicle just walking around. So I do like him. To answer your long, long story short, I, I do like him in it in a way you'll never get before. I wanted a bit of Burgess Meredith and that sort of WC feels. But, but we've had that. We've had Burgess Meredith do it. We don't need it again. Right. So let, let Danny DeVito come in, who was at the time, you know, he was, that was an interesting call as well, because would he have been the next Jack Nicholson? No, I, I think Burton originally was pondering getting Marlon Brando to do it. The studios were eyeing up uh, Dustin Hoffman. And also they wanted to get Robin Williams and, and push the Riddler into it at that time. But, but DeVito was good box office. The kids knew DeVito. I think there was a canny idea of just get him in. He had the height or lack of it. And it, it kind of works. He's got that gait and boys already. What makes this movie so special for me is the Penguin and Catwoman. And by virtue of the fact that I wasn't expecting it when I rewatched it, because what I remember the most about Batman Returns is Catwoman. Danny DeVito's performance as the Penguin with this most recent rewatch was like, oh, holy shit, this is so fucking great. And he is just so good in it. I mean, he is just incredible they both are truly the tour de force of this movie i mean mm-hmm. it's called batman returns but it should be called batman is also present because <laughs> yeah. we're we're not really invested in him the way we are them right and yeah. both of them have a great story and they're both used so well in the film so let's jump back because we are midnight mass and we do have to a lot a fair amount of time to worshipping Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. Mm. Uh, We've talked about Danny DeVito. It's one of those things. It's kind of like watching Madonna do Vogue at the MTV Awards, you know, where she's dressed in the Victorian gown. There are these things, these moments and queer pop culture history that just never stop giving. Mm. And Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, it just gives and it will give forever. It's like... It's like watching Elizabeth Taylor and and suddenly last summer, whatever. I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah. it's incredible. She was sewn into that costume. If you search on uh, YouTube, you can see the sort of behind the scenes stuff of her doing that whip and learn about how she learned how to use that whip. And mm. she did a lot of her own stunts. So Mark, why do we worship at the altar of this performance? She plays it brilliantly. Uh, you know, she starts it, you know, there's this mousy office almost intern who's shaking. Uh, and then she becomes this vixen almost through a drag makeover. You know, when she's kind yeah. of, I love how she, the transformation of the character is more based on the costume. So she's, she's trying to sew together and stitch together scraps of leather or whatever bits she's found. And, it, and with those massive wide eyes as well, I've forgotten how wide the eyes were. So you can really see Pfeiffer's face. We're not doing a sort of um, Frank Gorman Riddler mask here. I think the best performance she gives is where she's Selena Kyle, you know, she's Catwoman, but she's trying to not be Catwoman during the day. And she's just slightly shaky, hedge backwards hair. She looks like Alison Goldfrapp. And I say that as a total compliment. Another queer icon. Yeah, and she she has this sort of crazy parted hair. I really liked Michelle Pfeiffer. In a way, like, who else could it have been? I I couldn't imagine Annette Bening doing it in the same way. No. And it was a real career moment as well. Pfeiffer had been around for, well, 10 plus years. You know, she'd done Grease 2 and Scarface. But this felt like it was the first time she was 
elevated and she, you know she's doing it playing this kinky whip yielding as i think burton called her a, a kitten with a whip which is a, a lovely little phrase but no i do like her in the film i could have had more of her in it i think her motivations could have been a bit cleaner but what it is is she's just screwed you know she had a head injury she's just fucked in the head now so she doesn't really need to have an agenda she's just there she might fancy uh, bruce she might not I think she's the success of the film, totally, more so than perhaps DeVito for me. I like you saying that her agenda really is no agenda. It's chaos. Mm. And I think that the kind of bookends of the villain plots earlier when you talked about how maybe the Penguin has too many schemes, Mm. but perhaps the one that is maybe the most laughable now is his bid for mayor and how the city turns on him when they realize he's corrupt, Mm -hmm. which in a post everything world, would that even have stopped him from becoming mayor? You know, that's that's kind of the movie maybe assuming better of the voting public than it actually is. It's very prescient, isn't it? All this stuff, yeah. the mayors and um, and being hot-miked and recordings being thrown back at you where you're dissing the locals. And you could argue there's a little bit of Christopher Walken doing a little bit of East Coast self-made millionaires with big houses sort of um motif <laughs> slightly try not to say the name um but yeah i mean we've got we've now got a comic book villain circling the white house again yeah. um Let's dig into the Christopher Walken of it all, because what I think is really interesting about this movie is these characters are all high, goth, grotesque characters, Mm. but so is everyone else. Mm -hmm. The biggest character of this movie is Gotham. It's the artifice of Gotham. No one's really normal air quotes in this movie, and I think that's why we love it. Max Shrek is in many ways as over the top of villain as Catwoman and Penguin, or the fact that they have this whole big to-do at Christmas that's slightly off. Mm. Uh, And I just want to talk a little bit more about the world itself and how it helps us connect. I mean, I know you mentioned that it's all miniatures, but what's your take on Gotham as a character in this movie? It's a very different Gotham to the Batman 89. Um, I have a slight problem with like there's a car chase when uh, the penguins put a sort of um, a tracker thing underneath the batmobile and the batmobile's kind of plowing through christmas locals and and they look you know he's framing batman and if you look at the sequence how it's cut you barely see any streets or length or cars going down any length it's just constant close-ups and just one two or three second cuts of a car whilst i like that sort of indoor, you know, exterior is done indoor, which is a real sort of 60s TV motif. You know, it, it it has a sort of almost Dr. Zeus quality to it. Like, you know, exteriors as interiors. I, I slightly preferred the real gothic exclamation mark that was the Gotham of the previous film. But there was a thought, because they lost Anton First, who was the um, production designer on the first film. He was sadly, a, didn't do this film. He was a troubled soul. And he actually um, ended his own life not long after Batman Returns came out nothing to do with the film he just was having issues to sort of struggle with but now we have Bo Welch who comes in I think he said I wanted to give it a vocabulary of colors and shapes specific to Tim Burton himself so I can get that and he said whilst Batman 89 Gotham that we'll call that the east side of the city we're going to now go on the west side that's how we'll justify it I thought okay all right we'll do it that way I still don't think going back to the idea of models and artifice I still don't get that epic scale But then I like the fact that the whole film seems to take place in the Arctic ice world, that bridge world that sort of feels a bit Central Parky. 
I, I like that it's got a, you know the plazas. It's quite contained, um, so I don't mind it for that. But I preferred the Gotham of the first film, and then before Gotham just became some Joel Schumacher sort of whatever that is, a sort of frenzy of day glow color and Tommy Lee Jones, like a funhouse. Yeah, 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 yeah. So less keen on this Gotham, but I, I prefer the tone of this film. That makes sense. It, it's a real, like you say, it's. We don't need to have villains with agendas. They just need to be creating chaos, which is kind of a, a, a mainstay of all Batman villainy. And yeah. we don't need to be sort of, oh, we're going to change, you know, we're going to up everyone's electricity bills or or, <laughs> or do something really mundane. We're just going to fuck up Christmas. That's enough. In the canon of Tim Burton's filmography, where does Batman Returns kind of fall? And same question, but in the sort of canon of all the Batman movies, limiting it to movies and i'll say that for me i had to take peewee's big adventure out of it because if i did include peewee's big adventure it would be number one but i know that's because of my sheer love for paul rubens and peewee herman and how much he impacted my life so Mm -hmm. removing him batman returns is third for me it's edward scissorhands beetlejuice batman returns which Mm -hmm. in a giant filmography is still pretty high up considering some people don't really think of the Batman movies as Tim Burton films. I totally do. And then in in terms of Batman movies, it's my favorite. It would be number one. So I'm wondering, where do you place the movies in terms of these two, you know, lists? Batman Returns is the first Tim Burton film that's a mega big hit. Whilst it didn't make the same money as the original, it did enough. It did well. And if you look, you know, look back at his CV, you know, starting with Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, Edward to a degree. They were smaller films, but Batman Returns comes on. It's the first big Tim Burton film. You, you could argue that about the previous one. My favorite Tim Burton film, I have a few and it differs, but I fell in love with Dark Shadows when it came out. I just loved that film. I loved the Knights in White satin opening. And I, I that was my film of the year. And I don't know why, it just got under my skin. Um, so that's where I'm coming from. Um, and I liked Beetlejuice. I didn't quite get the cult of it at the time. I came to it a bit late. Uh, it was almost on TV before I noticed it. But I get its brilliance. And as I, th- as I say, there's there's quite a lot of Beetlejuice in Batman Returns. The the boneyard design, that sort of candy cane stripes, uh, skeleton masks. It's quite a graveyard shift going on in um, Batman Returns. I think that all makes sense. For me, this is definitely one of my favorite Burton films. Edward would maybe be neck and neck with this or just a little bit above. Oh my God. It's my favorite. I didn't even yeah. consider Edward. Edward is my favorite Tim Burton movie. Sorry to interrupt, Michael. I, I did just wonder. To, I did wonder I'm, when you you'd forgot that one. I was like, hang on, he's forgotten Edward. Sorry, Michael. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All good. No, I mean, Edward to me really just imbues kind of the spirit of everything I love about cult movies and about Tim Burton. But I love Batman Returns. I've had a long affinity for this movie. I always, in interviews when asked what my favorite Christmas film is, I always say this. So it's definitely my favorite Batman movie. Now, in terms of Christmas and holiday horror, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, there's a tradition in the UK, at least there used to be, I don't know how much so in present day, Hmm. that there would be ghost stories shared around the holidays. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, because this movie really taps into the horror of the holiday season. What is it about that specific connection to spookiness 
and this time that's supposed to be the most festive time of year. Mm. And is that part of the draw here? Yes, although, like I say, we had it, it came out in July here. I wondered if the Christmas thing was almost, they were thinking ahead, like for the uh, when it had its home release, that would hit Christmas markets and then, you know, that would have a poetry to it. Yes, we do have a great, uh, particularly English-British uh, tradition of ghost stories. In fact, a friend of mine who would make a perfect guest to, is a guy called Mark Gatiss, who's an actor, writer, director. And he has often done these mr james uh half hour 20 minute ghost stories that really tap into that gothic graveyard victoriana which i would stew there's a little bit there in burton's batman movies yeah i don't know why we have this connection particularly in britain with um christmas stories but they i mean it goes back to um as i say mr james and uh conan doyle yeah, I'm not sure of an answer, sadly, on that one. Maybe one of the most spooky goth places that reminds me of like a real life Tim Burton movie. It's got to be, I mean, London at Christmas time or any British town, you know, has this sort of quality because it's typically dark and gloomy and cold. It could possibly be snowing. And then you've got all this sort of old timey architecture and, and sort of village alleys that lead into mysterious nooks and crannies. I love it so much. And I find it all to be very gothic. So much of the music I grew up loving as a teenager came from England because mm. I was a goth kid, an alternative kid. And one of the things about this film is it came out when I was a senior in high school. And of course, I had already been a Tim Burton fan. And, and goths had obviously embraced Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands, but they were pretty cartoony and, and pretty colorful. You know, they weren't as embraced by goth culture as they are today. I think we took ourselves more seriously back in the 80s and 90s you know as alternative kids but Danny Elfman was embraced for sure mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. as a bona fide musician previous to even being a, a composer for films and mm -hmm. uh and Susie Sue was the mm -hmm. icon of all icons so I'll never forget when the Susie track came up at the end you know mm -hmm. and face to face played for the first time it was kind of like what oh my god because <laughs> Prince was so famously featured in the first Batman movie. And yeah. I love Prince, but Prince isn't goth. You know, Prince is Prince. And Susie being included and in Batman Returns, to me, was like kind of the icing on the cake and kind of nailed the aesthetic. It kind of brought it all together. So I'm wondering how much you think music, not just the Susie track, but more importantly, the Danny Elfman soundtrack, is part of the ingredients that makes us love this film so much. How important is music? Totally. I mean, I'm a big movie soundtrack fan and the, the music of a film is important to me. And I notice if it's not there. Um, also, going back to Susie and the Banshees, uh, it was Tim Burton wanted them and approached them and got them involved. He was apparently less keyed on the Prince thing because it detracted from the Danny Elfman score. I think ah. Danny Elfman... Yeah, Danny Elfman's score in this film kind of is the overture to everything else that follows. You know, you've got Paul Rubin opening with the yeah. uh, almost this Moses-like thing of putting the baby in the reeds and the camera and the titles follow the cot, you know, through the water and the, the titles kind of echo and mimic that. But it's Danny Elfman's brilliant sort of gothic choirs that are rising, literally lifting the roof of this film. If you want to get a little analytical about it, if, if I feel perhaps the, the decision to shoot all those exteriors on a lot and then closed lot at, at, um, at Burbank it's Danny Elfman's score that gives it that bigger sense of space but it's mm. it's more of a story space it's not a, a city brutalist space like perhaps the first film did he just gives it this it's flirty his score it's it, it flows yeah. and it has that Christmas 
Dr. Zeus uh, quality to it as well. Um, no, I'm a big, big Danny Elfman fan. And I, I was I was re- read that they had a little bit of a fallout around the time of Batman and Batman Returns, but they, they patched it up because obviously they carried on working and, and doing great things. Well, and that's why I believe Howard Ashman did the score for Ed Wood. They had a brief like mm. creative divorce before they came back together. Mm-hmm. I really love the score of this movie as well. And in fact, I think one of the best moments in the movie, obviously it's so uh, visual, but it's really punctuated by Elfman's score is the sequence of Selena's transformation mm-hmm. where she has fallen out the window and hit the snow and the cats are surrounding her. And it's that kind of like almost horror movie music that transitions Mm -hmm. into what it sounds like when snow falls. That's what I think of when Mm -hmm. I see heavy snow now because that music is so impactful and it's quite brilliant. And then we cut to her beautiful kitchen. I was looking, she's got a real Stephen King sort of pink kitschy kitchen that's just messy as well. The music kind of steers us and lets us sort of undulate through that as well. One thing I did want to note, and I think we, as three queer men who love this movie, I think it's worth noting that there is an inherent queerness to this movie in particular. Tim Burton is one of these filmmakers who I think speaks to queer people, even though we know he's perceived as a heterosexual man. He was, you know, married to Helena Bonham Carter and, you know, all of that. But I think Daniel Waters much the same way. Like, I believe Daniel Waters identifies as heterosexual. That's how he presents himself. But clearly has written films that queer people really respond to in a very specific way. And I think this Mm. film in particular is super queer. We haven't really discussed that. And I just felt like we should at least note it. And you did bring it up in terms of Catwoman and her transformation. I I think the same thing, we see it in Jawbreaker. We relate to what it feels like to be the bullied, you know, wallflower who wants to be left alone, but still gets taunted or teased. And there's a fantasy. It's the Carrie fantasy of transforming yourself and becoming a monster and then taking revenge. And I think Catwoman in particular is more drag queeny than anyone else because she has the sass and the fuck it attitude. Like she's not really out to just create destruction. She's out to have fun and play with people and taunt people and toy with people. I just wanted to kind of acknowledge the queerness of it all, even though ironically, you know, it's at the hands of these seemingly heterosexual people. Totally. Do you know what the queerest thing is? And I'm sorry, this is a trivia thing. And I read this a while back and it's kind of stuck with me. Do you remember there's a little, like there's a little um, Bichon Freeze dog in it? Yes. Uh, yeah. We know where that dog also starred. That was Precious from Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> yeah. That dog was in a lot of movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the dog was called Dala. And that was the, uh-huh. the name of the dog. And she's probably like preserved in aspic somewhere now. But I was thinking, <laughs> oh, please let this be true. Please don't just let it be an urban myth. But even if it's just an urban myth, I'm going to go with it. You're right about the queer thing. I mean, it does set it up. We get told when it comes to Batman that, oh, that it gets a bit kinky when Chris uh, O'Donnell's nipples and codpiece come up eh, in, the next, who cares? in the next movie. But I'm like, no, yeah. no, no, no. This is kinky. This is queer already. You know, I, yeah. I, I could almost see Alfred the butler you know, going to take the bat suit to Mr. S. Leather for repairs. <laughs> the two of them bond over their outfits almost. They kind of love each other's outfits and they're looking at each other and fighting each other. It's quite out there on the kink scale. Earlier when we were talking about kind of the the cohesive gel uh, of this movie is the draw of the villains and the idea that it is the misfit and the other that really propels the story and also makes us keep coming back to it. It's really a sequence of different presentations of otherness, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that she 
gets to transform and become the monstrous other that some people fantasize of. That is her queer transformation. The penguin is always queer because that's just who he is. He's outside of society and always will be. Batman is the truth and Bruce Wayne is the drag. Like, Uh I think that's the thing because he is more himself when he's Batman. And that's why when they're in their suits, they have that sexual chemistry that they kind of don't really have Mm -hmm. otherwise because they're drawn to their otherness. And I think that's something that subtext subconsciously we're pulled towards. And maybe that's the thing that other hero movies are lacking is they p- don't play with it as much, if that makes sense. The great thing about um, Selena Kyle is she's lost. That moment she hits the ground and the cats start licking her back to life, she's lost. She's a lost soul. Batman kind of makes it work. He's you know, He's got his alter ego and all of that. And the, the Penguin's got a slightly different agenda of just chaos and some sort of... He, he just wants to be noticed, you know. Whereas Catwoman is just from the get-go, she's lost. There's no retrieving her. Yeah, you know, Bruce tries to talk to her and bring her back to reality and she's not having it. And that, that brilliant scene where she's just... Oh, hit me more, throw more at me. There's a real sort of tragedy about it, which you don't get. There is no depth of of characters and background in most of the Marvel movies. They confuse a beginning point for origin. And for me, that's not how it works. The, the origins of Catwoman are because she was just quite a lonely spinster chucked out of a window who then she finds some energy and acceptance by being the most extreme, kinky, slightly mysterious version of herself and that, i think that's why it works and you never you don't get that in other you know the marvel movies it's just not there it's as I say, it's all about how did they become the villain not why are they the villain well we right. began this podcast talking about how you are an annual annual visitor of san francisco and so mm. I, I feel like my queer take on the batman stuff since you brought up joel schumacher and you're right i'd forgotten this but everyone freaked out about joel schumacher and how gay those batman movies were but i think the best analogy is the san francisco one batman returns is the Folsom Street Fair. It's the south of market of Batman's. And, you know, Batman Forever, the Joel Schumacher movies, they're like the Castro, they're the WeHo, they're the Soho, you know, they're the gay. It's the New York, it's the New yeah. Packing District. It's it's all of that. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I rather, I like that San Francisco's Batman Returns. I, I like that. that, that yeah. That's <laughs> a poetry I can live yeah. with. So, Mark, you saw this movie in the theater Mm. in July of 1992, Mm. and here you are all these years later talking about it. From that first time you saw it to now, obviously, you have spent some time thinking about it. How has your relationship with Batman Returns changed over the years, if at all? I prefer it now as a Tim Burton exercise of Tim Burtonness. I think it works better as a Tim Burton movie than a Batman movie. I love Batman movies. I do prefer what Tim Burton did and a little bit of what Joel Schumacher did. Uh, Batman Forever, which is the next uh, film, there's a lot of qualities and time, you know, moments in time that I do like about that film, partly because of where I was as a, I was 19, 20, and I had a great summer of 95 when Batman Forever came out. But what I'd like about the two Burton films especially is they're, they're not afraid to be Batman movies. I mean, if you look at um, the Batman, the, the recent one with Robert Pattinson from uh, 2022, everyone's just suggesting you've got a Jeffrey Dahmer Riddler that 
barely has got a question mark in his life. I think there's one in a latte or something, and that and that's <laughs> it. And I'm like, oh, where's the sense of color? To me, Batman villainy is color and excess, and yes, maybe a bit of drag and a sense of showmanship and a sense of arrival. The great thing Tim Burton did in his two Batman movies is his villains arrived. They made an entrance, and you don't get that when it's Anne Hathaway and all that's Catwomany about her is her glasses kind of go up in a with a sort of triangle ear thing. I'm like, mm. boring. Yeah, I was just like, where's the sense of design? And whilst maybe Schumacher, particularly in Batman and Robin in 98, where just the, the design is too much of a sort of mental clusterfuck, Burton gets it. So maybe Batman Returns is my favourite Batman movie. After all, who knew? Um, <laughs> yeah, because it's it's kind of Batman, it's Burton, it's Folsom Street, it's Mr. S. Leather Gotham. Yeah, it's, it's, Susie it's all of that. I'm saying more about myself here than a Batman fan, yeah. So, and <laughs> yeah, exactly. too, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it gets that Americana as well, which I think, in fact, I did an article last year on the British production heritage and history of all the Batman movies. And the only one that was not really shot at all within Britain confines was Batman Returns. And like I say, when I watch it, I feel I'm actually in America or Gotham watching it, not on a soundstage full of actors that used to be in hospital dramas in our childhood. (laughs) Well, Mark, that is the perfect way to end this interview. You have come full circle and, and acknowledged here on the Midnight Mass podcast that Batman Returns is, in fact, your favorite Batman movie. Where can our listeners find you? Where can they read your books? And do you have anything coming up we should be looking out for? Yeah, I'm circling a new book for the new year. And I can be found at markoconnell.co.uk. I'm on um, Instagram, uh, whatever Twitter's currently called. So I'm out there. Yeah, usually all roads lead to Bond when you put my name in. But I'm I'm there. And um, watch this space next year. I actually need to talk to you, Peaches, about next year's project as well. But okay. uh, we'll do that privately. I'll be across the pond in, in mere days. So I mm, look forward mm. to seeing you. Taking in that gothic London Christmas as That's well. That's right. Yes. Don't get haunted. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. That was our fabulous interview with Mark O'Connell. You know, Peaches, I have been thinking about the fact that Mark has written so much on James Bond, but also has this great love of Batman. And I think culturally, there is a lot of synergy between the character of Batman and James Bond because they represent in some ways a hyper-masculinity or like a masculine action ideal that appeals to a certain kind of viewer on the face value, but also I think appeals to people who are a little bit other or ultra because... Sometimes that hypermasculinity pushes into a camp territory that we also appreciate. Absolutely. There is no doubt that most of the entries in the Batman universe, whether it be television, obviously television, but Tim Burton, <laughs> for sure, Joel Schumacher, it's imbued with a lot of camp. We know that. James Bond is no different. Oh my God. And it's fabulous. So Mark O'Connell is, I mean, he really understands camp, but he also really gets cinema. And it was Mark who is really pushing for us to do another movie about a superhero who happens to be a super girl, as it were, that Mark really wants us to do. But Mark said, you know, Batman Returns is one of my favorite movies. And I said, well, that's on our list. It's going to be our holiday movie this year. So why don't you come on? And I'm so glad that he did. 
Yeah, I do love his push for Supergirl, especially in light of the fact that I believe it's turning 40 next year. But there is kind of a kinship between Supergirl and Batman Returns in the way that both of the movies feature kind of like fabulously queer celebrated actors. Of course, the villain in Supergirl is played by Faye Dunaway, who somehow on Midnight Mass, although we allude to her a lot and have talked about her, we've not yet done a Faye Dunaway movie. So maybe in 2024. Yeah, that's nuts. I guess there are these sort of Midnight Mass episodes that are inevitable. I described one the other day because I posted a picture of myself with my friend Jessica, who I've known for 35 years. Speaking of goth, you know, because 1992 is the year I graduated from high school. Well, in 1992, right. Jessica and I at St. Mary's High School, we were wearing all black over our uniforms. You know, we were the goth kids or whatever. So I posted a photo of her with former guests of the podcast, Chris and Melissa La Martina, who I met through you. And I said that, you know, Chris had been on our Harold and Maude episode and Melissa had been on our Wicker Man episode, of course. And even as Aurora Gorealis uh, created a drink, a special cocktail that was shared on our Patreon for that episode. But I said, Jessica is sure to be a future guest on the inevitable Heather's episode. And, you know, it's that thing where, We have not yet done Heathers. We have not yet done Mommy Dearest. We have not yet done Showgirls. Now, I know that those are what we would consider to be inevitable episodes. But in 2024, because that's our next season and it's right around the corner, Michael and I will choose some of those inevitable episodes. But we can't do them all, all at once. You have to save some for the future. But Supergirl, in many ways... That's got to be on the list. It's so good. No, it does. I mean, you've got Faye Dunaway, Brenda Vaccaro, Helen Slater. It's a wild movie. Is this Uh, Batman Returns the first superhero movie we've done? Yes and no. We certainly did a Marvel movie that unfortunately had to be removed from our feed. (gasps) Um, That's right. And in terms of comic book adaptations... Yes. A scandal. <laughs> and in terms of comic book adaptations, we've done Barbarella, which is based on a French comic book. So yeah. we delve into the cult crossover of comics, but this is the first time we've really hit such a pop culture benchmark character yeah. as Batman. And I'm glad that we did. And I'm also glad that this episode's a little more loosey-goosey in our conversation because it feels like you're listening to our holiday party. This is the Midnight Mass Holiday office party. Yeah, we're drunk. We've been sipping on eggnog that's spiked. Uh, Speaking of loose, uh, wait till I introduce our next guest. Oh, my God. Wait, he, (laughs) he described himself that way. Do not cancel me. This next guest is a dear friend of mine, a respected author, a performer at the Terror Vault, an icon of the adult film world and industry as far as gay hardcore pornography goes um and he's also the co-host of a really great podcast and happens to be a lawyer to boot so this is a well-rounded individual who also like mark told me that he loved batman returns this was one of those episodes you and i decided we were doing before we had guests picked out so yeah Uh, He is about to come on and discuss his love of Batman Returns and how it may have provided some sexual awakening. And we're going to talk to him about it right now. This is the one, the only Blue Bailey.
Welcome back, everybody. It is my extreme pleasure to introduce our next special guest. This is someone I actually have had the pleasure of working with in the last few years. Um, I'm also a fan of theirs, and they are a performer at Terror Vault, but that is not what they're best known for. In addition to doing scare acting and appearing nude quite often in the Terror Vault shows, this next guest is a sober attorney. That's right, a bona fide lawyer, also a published author. His book, Blue Movie, came out recently and is available to read. Not only that, he is the co-host of the Reading is Fundamental podcast, where I've had the pleasure of being a guest. And what he's possibly best known for is being an award-winning adult film entertainer. Without further ado, it's the one, the only, it's Blue Bailey. Hi, Beaches. Hi, Michael. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm so excited that we get to celebrate this very dark Christmassy film with you because I feel like for so many people, this is one of those subversive holiday faves. When you list your favorite holiday movies or Christmas movies, Batman Returns doesn't immediately come to everyone's mind when making a list. But for folks in the know, it is usually up at the top. So when did you first discover this film? How long have you loved it? What are your origins with Batman Returns? I'm pretty sure I saw this in the movie theaters. My parents took me when I was four (laughs) when it came out and it terrified me. But my family uh, was divorced. My dad did Hanukkah. My mom did Christmas. I was raised Jewish. And kind of from the very beginning, I was told that Santa Claus and Christmas aren't real. So I think a big appeal to me was that this was a Christmas movie that didn't focus on the holiday and kind of incorporated Batman, incorporated horror. And then as an adult, I think looking back at it, I think like Catwoman was kind of the start of my kink and fetish experience. Wow. You've already blown my mind and we're just starting this interview. Okay. One, I'd never thought about what it would be like to grow up Jewish. And I think a lot of my Jewish friends kind of embrace the sort of pop culture aspects of Christmas. But the fact that you specifically like this film because it doesn't go so hard on the Christmas stuff, but it still is a holiday movie. It's a winter film. It's a goth film for sure that all takes place in a very snowy, wintry kind of holiday environment. That's awesome. Um, And then the second thing, which is so obvious, is that I actually, full disclosure, asked you if you were interested in being a guest on a different podcast we were doing that was much more in line with you, you know, being um, a sexually out there public persona, you know, as far as, you know, being an adult entertainer, your book, uh, all of that. And I loved that you said, you know, that movie did, and I won't name the movie, but I'm sure people might be able to figure it out. We did it just recently, and it does include a lot of leather and bondage and poppers <laughs> and Crisco. Um, and yeah, you were kind of like, yeah, you just weren't, you weren't obsessed with it, right? We want you to be obsessed with these movies. And you suggested actually on a short list that you gave me, Batman Returns. And it just now hit me over the head like, oh, duh, this totally makes sense. Catwoman is Folsom Street Fair. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dig into that a little bit. You know, you watch Catwoman at a young age. Tell us about your leather fetish and your kink and and how it evolved and how it connects back to Catwoman. I think I first got started in leather kind of doing adult entertainment. I kind of like worked my way up. I did 
circle jerks, then blowjob scenes, then full on like gangbangs. And I got to like play around with a lot of leather. A lot of it was like superficial. It was like put on this outfit and go play. So I didn't really understand and learn like the psychology and power dynamics of BDSM right away. But I had a lot of exposure to a lot of fun outfits and gear. And that started my initial interest. I remember when I was younger, I I probably like those themes and those desires weren't like apparent, but I didn't run around like wanting to play Batman or Robin. I ran around wanting to play Catwoman. I had a long like rubber toy snake and that was my whip. And I would go around like hitting like kids and, and kind of got in trouble for that at an early age. So yeah, from the get-go, I have always wanted to be Catwoman. I've been into leather. I've been exploring rubber actually more recently. And I think like the first like custom piece I want to get is like the Michelle Pfeiffer like Catwoman suit. It's super interesting because when we look back at sort of a theme of this whole episode, the queer draw to Catwoman, of course, is very prevalent in the discussion in various ways. But you're bringing up something really particular with this avenue towards leather, towards rubber, and and power dynamic. And when you said power dynamic, I zeroed in on that. Because obviously, when you look at the costumed characters in the world of Batman, there is a transformation when they don their other persona. There's more of an authenticity. I, I said in our other interview that Bruce Wayne is really the costume and Batman's the truth. But what's interesting here is that Bruce Wayne as Bruce Wayne is still powerful. He has whatever he wants. He can get whatever he wants. He's just what whatever. But in the course of this movie, when Selena Kyle becomes Catwoman, that's the shift. And I think that's kind of the draw, right? She's meek and she is not noticed. But then when she puts on this thing, the power dynamic shifts. And would you say that's part of the draw and part of the connection to the kink community? I mean, it's obvious, but I, I would like to hear you talk about that. That has definitely been a draw for me. It's funny that you mentioned the costumes and that Batman and Catwoman are the real authentic person. Like when I was rewatching it yesterday, they show up to the costume ball dressed as their human selves. And that's in a way kind of their costume. That's actually like my favorite scene of the movie. But yeah, like kind of like exploring like the empowerment that comes through Catwoman, like being in her gear. She's like, I don't even think there's like close-ups on her until like later in the movie, but she starts as just like background character. And then she just kind of grows into this like sexuality that's just really appealing. I would even argue that there's like a lot of like queer kind of readings into the penguin as well. Yeah. Like the penguin got kicked out of his family early. There's kind of this chosen family element to it with the circus, quote unquote, freaks that he befriends. And I always had a very accepting family, but I, I moved to San Francisco very early at like 18 and developed the chosen family with a bunch of other freaks here. And I, I see that with the Penguin and, and his friends. We definitely love talking about these themes and exploring these themes on this podcast. We come back to them over and over again. And I think one of the reasons we do is because it's one of the reasons the movies are cult. They speak to a niche group of people who've had a niche experience. And so we bond with these movies in a very specific way, especially as queer people or just other, you know, other people who grow up feeling other. For sure, the penguin represents that monster trope of feeling like you don't fit in, being an outcast, being cast away, having to go find your people, the people that are like you, the creatures that will accept you, you know, the other penguins, which let's face it, what animal do we think of when we are <laughs> celebrating queerness in the animal kingdom? 
it's penguins, right? <laughs> There's more gay penguins than there are gay. Uh, well, I don't know. I'm not a fucking zoologist. <laughs> I'm just, but yeah, I've heard more about gay penguins than anything else. Michelle Pfeiffer, I love this conversation because we've already discussed with our other guest the drag of it all. But the leather of it all is very similar. And in many ways, I think drag performers and leather folks in our community use that armor as a way to become themselves. So you put on a costume, but actually what you're doing is unlocking this part of yourself that was stifled or suppressed. And we see that in Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman. You know, that is what it is. So I love this. The villains of this film they're queer. But I would also argue in many ways that Batman is as well. Is Batman Returns queer enough to call it a queer movie? I think so. I've never really thought right answer. Batman <laughs> is queer. But yeah, Catwoman for sure. Penguin, I could definitely read into it. I love that Penguin's a fucking pervert. Yeah. Like, that woman like shoves her heel on his face and he's like sniffing it and offering her different kinds of loop and groping his uh, constituents. Sniveling and horny, right? Yeah. I never picked up on this line, but like the way that Christopher Walken gets him to run for office, like the final words is like unlimited poontang. And he's like, what? I'm in. <laughs> it's interesting talking about the queerness of this movie. And when you think of the queer elements, obviously the otherness of Catwoman and Penguin are very on the sleeve in the way that we as queer audience connect with that. That being said, I think the other queer character in this film is Gotham City itself. Mm. And I was doing some research in between our interviews and discovered something that I wish I had known when we were talking about this earlier, that they leaned on the imagery of the Weimar Republic quite a bit in creating this vision of Gotham. And as we know, that was a very queer chapter of German history. And I'm wondering what your take on this presentation of Gotham is, because it seems like per Batman movie, Gotham's slightly different. Like, mm -hmm. this isn't even the same as the Burton Gotham in 89, and it's definitely not the Shoemaker Gotham we get in a couple years. What's your thoughts on the Gotham of Batman Returns? From what I've been reading, that the studio had a lot of influence on the first movie, and they wanted to create a direct sequel, and Tim Burton was like, fuck that, I don't want to do that. And they were basically like, well, then we want a Tim Burton Batman movie. So I feel like this is kind of a more true representation of him. I always like that Gotham is a little gaudy in a sense. Like they have all these Christmas decorations, these huge statues with big male asses just in the background. <laughs> I am obsessed with the ice princess and just like their use of her throughout the film. What are you guys' thoughts? The way Michael presented it is, is so true in that Gotham much like a lot of movies, you know, the, the location or the set, you know, can become a character in the film, depending on the movie. And certainly in Batman movies, Gotham is a character. You know, it's part of what yeah. makes the magic all come to life. And for me, Batman Returns is my favorite. And part of it is it's very theatrical. It almost looks like you're watching something that's been built for the theater or the stage because it's not set in reality at all. And I kind of feel like reality is overrated these days. You know, the new Batman movies, you know, it's a much more bleak and gritty and, and real vibe. I prefer this. It, it's fantastical. It's lavish. It feels more like an old Hollywood movie. Again, hello, queer. That's where that Weimar comes in, right? Like right. you say theatrical. Yes. 
the whole city's the Kit Kat Club, yeah. as opposed yes. to the world outside. And you can see the German expressionism. I'm not the first person to point this out, but there's very much the cabinet of Dr. Caligari in this. The penguin looks like him, you know? Yeah. And so I think that you're absolutely right, Blue, that Tim Burton really got to Tim Burton this. And I think that's really one of the movie's strengths. What do you think about the fact that Michelle, to me, I think as queer men, you're bringing up the penguin is incredible because I think what we've discovered, and especially with our other guest, Mark O'Connell, who's a film writer, he writes books on movies. What we all kind of talked about was sort of like, God, as adults, real adults who lived more life revisiting this movie, a movie that, you know, we all know the great takeaway is Catwoman, you know, especially as queer people, that rewatching it, it was like, sort of like, God, how fucking great is Danny DeVito? How great is the Penguin? But jumping back into Michelle Pfeiffer, one of the reasons I feel like we fell in love with her so much is I almost feel like Michelle Pfeiffer is one of those actors who's so beautiful and so striking and so stunning that she frumped herself up or chose frumpy movies like After Baker Boys, like things like Witches of Eastwick, where she, you know, is kind of a mess, even though she's so gorgeous. But I feel like with Batman, she said, I'm going for it. I'm going to get in the best shape of my life. And they literally sewed her into that costume. You know, she did those stunts and she learned how to use the whip. So Let's talk a little bit more about your love affair with Michelle Pfeiffer. Do you think you could do Catwoman drag or would it be Blue Bailey? Like when you say you want to become Catwoman in your next fetish look, can you describe that for us? And also, what is it that you love so much about Michelle's performance? Leather is in the drag family. It's just on a different edge of the spectrum. I don't know if I want to be out there doing like stunts and stuff like that. I'm not, I'm not the best dancer, but I think to me... The biggest appeal of embodying Catwoman would be the sexuality and mastering the whip. That, to me, would be super hot. Do you have whip experience, aside from the rubber <laughs> snake? Most of my life has been more, like, the bottom side, and it's only, like, recently that I'm starting to, like, embrace my daddy era and more the dominant side. I don't have any experience throwing away, but it's something I definitely would like to learn. You have to embrace it because you're not getting any younger, honey. <laughs> would you say Catwoman is daddy energy then? A hundred percent daddy energy, especially with the way that she like works the penguin over. It's just like so hot to see her use her sexuality to like seduce him and get him to do what she wants. We've obviously been praising Catwoman. We've praised Danny DeVito's performance of the Penguin. And I think the strength of this movie, and I think the strength of a lot of Batman movies falls in the fact on how well the villains are presented. People necessarily are not showing up to Batman movies for Batman, because I think Batman movies about Batman are less interesting. Let's be honest. It's the villains that draw us in. But there's a third variant here that does not get discussed enough. And I think that he's equally as fabulous. Who's the real villain of this movie? Is it Catwoman, Penguin, or Max Shrek? Max Shrek, who I think was like created just for this movie. Like from the research I've done, they wanted to bring back Billy D. Williams and have like this two-face element. And he said no. So then they brought in Christopher Walken, who originally was supposed to be David Bowie, I believe. But yeah, Christopher Walken is amazing he's so creepy his son's hot i think his son ended up playing like leatherface in the reboots really yeah did not know that that's amazing i actually didn't know that either max shrek 
What's great about that character, first of all, the casting is perfection. It's kind of like Michelle Pfeiffer, where it's like, oh, God, you you nailed that. So I always use Margaret Hamilton as the ultimate example. You know, she comes in, she plays the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz. And it's almost like saying, fuck you to anyone else who ever tries to be the Wicked Witch. Right. And Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, kind of. I think did that, you know, I know Michael is planning to do a mini mass where he discusses the Catwoman movie. So yes. if you're a Patreon <laughs> subscriber, um, you get to hear about that. But I think Michelle Pfeiffer just nailed it so hard. We've also seen Colin Farrell, who I really, really love, take a stab at the Penguin. And I, I would go back and say, Danny DeVito nailed it. But I feel like with Max Schreck, it's another example of like, he was perfection. I can't imagine another performer doing it and you know what else about his performance to me it's the one where christopher walken gets to show you like i am bella lugosi i am a boris karloff i am a vincent price like i'm operating on that level of confidence and creepiness but since we are keeping this show so sexual blue because i don't often get to ask guests you know some of these unrestrained questions fuck mary kill Penguin, Catwoman, Max Shrek. Oh, Mary Catwoman. She probably wouldn't have me because she'd want to be on her own. Fuck Max you. Shrek. <laughs> you would and fuck it, Max Shrek? Yeah. Yeah. And kill the penguin. I don't know. I may I may switch it to fuck Catwoman and Mary Max Shrek for the power, but I thought you were gonna say you're gonna sit on the penguin's face. Maybe if you hired me. <laughs> Mary and Catwoman makes sense, right? Except she tells us, oh, wait, I'm not married. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Let's talk about the Batman of it all, because it's the one thing in this episode we barely talked about. I think it was kind of um, surprising for the world to hear that Michael Keaton, who up till then, you know, was famous for being Mr. Mom, really, right. you know, um, and, and really a comedic actor and kind of a silly comedic actor, you know, that uh, no one bat an eye when, you know, the Beetlejuice commercials came out, right? And he was the perfect Beetlejuice. Batman was an out-of-the-box casting choice. What do you think about Michael Keaton's Batman, especially in relationship to now all the other cinematic Batmans we've had come after him? Batman Returns, I think, was my first Batman movie. I watched that before I even watched the first one. Ah. Um, and like Michael was saying earlier, like the focus is on the villains. Like we don't even really get Batman until like 20 minutes into the movie. Now, after watching all of them, I I think Michael Keaton is the best Bruce Wayne, and he does a great Batman. But I think, for me, Christopher Nolan does a little bit better of a Batman where his Bruce Wayne character kind of isn't the best. Yeah, I get that. It's not Christopher Nolan, though. What's his the name? The, Christian Bale. Christian, Christian Bale. Bale. I was going to say, the guy with the anger issues. <laughs> Christopher Nolan via Christian Bale does the thing that we talked about earlier where Christian Bale's Batman feels like the more authentic version of who that person is. And Christian Bale really imbues Bruce Wayne with the like, I'm just the artifice of this person. And I think that that's really maybe the thing that works the most with those movies. I don't know. My biggest issue with Christopher Nolan is... His movies are brilliant and brilliantly crafted, almost perfectly put together. And obviously he is a genius, but they lack any sense of humor. Obviously with Tim Burton, Joel Schumacher, you've got a wild sense of camp and humor and, you know, 
Michael's shaking his head no. But like to me, when Christian <laughs> Bale is talking as Batman and I'm supposed to take it seriously in this otherwise humorless movie and he's going, bleh, bleh, bleh. that's the humor, Peaches. To me, that's the camp. You've got I don't Christian think it's Bale. intentional. I know, but that to me is what makes <laughs> it like, especially by the time Dark Knight Rises pops up and you've got Tom Hardy being like, oh, yes, Batman. <laughs> you know, like that's amazing to me. That's comedy. Yeah. But Joel Schumacher and Tim Burton are in on the joke. I do like that Michael Keaton kind of like actively reduced his dialogue while in Batman and kind of wanted just the suit and his actions to speak for itself. And that had more of the dialogue as Bruce Wayne. Okay, so before we get too far away from it, earlier you mentioned the Ice Princess, who is a really kind of iconic looking character, but is someone that isn't discussed enough when people talk about this movie. Although I think drag fans will remember that famously for that RuPaul Christmas special, Kylie Sonique Love wore the Ice Princess outfit. And I think people who were in on it knew and other people were like, she just looks fabulous. But talk to me a little bit about the Ice Princess, because you said you really like that character. And that's a really interesting person to single out. Does she also pop up on Dragula on one of the reunions? I think Bitter Betty played her as well. That makes sense. Bitter Betty is one of us. She totally gets the pop culture. She has great taste. So probably, yes. For me, I love her because she's drag, she's camp, and she's kind of like the epitome of like the dumb porn star. It's like, do the tree lights up and then I press the button or do I press the button and then the tree lights up? (laughs) I don't just like trees. I'm an actress. To me, she's like if Anna Nicole existed in Gotham, you know, and it's perfectly delivered. The costume is great. The performance is great. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought her up because we hadn't yet discussed her. And it's another reason the movie is queer. Check, you know, just tick it off the box, you know, just yet another drag performance in the movie. So Blue, fuck, Mary kill, Christian Bale Batman, Val Kilmer Batman, or Michael Keaton, Batman. Mary Michael Keaton, fuck Christian Bale, kill Val Kilmer. Really? I yeah. love Val Kilmer. Oh my god! But I think you Sorry. know. I think the problem is that I love Val Kilmer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, it also makes sense because let's face it. I mean, but what if you Bale- get spit roasted by him and Robin? That changes everything. <laughs> Michael, what about you? You need to answer this as well. Michael posted a picture of himself recently where he's very horny. I was wearing reindeer antlers, but you know, not now. <laughs> Although someone said it was giving salt burn, which I haven't seen yet. So now I need to go see that movie because apparently there's an antler situation. I don't know. Um, to answer your question, I think the thing is that Christian Bale's version of Bruce Wayne is like just a hair removed from Patrick Bateman. Let's be honest. He's playing That's another right. like power yeah. millionaire. And we've seen Patrick Bateman fuck, which of course gives me pause because it looks like it's good. So I just Okay, fair enough. So you would fuck Christian Bale. So your answer would be the same. Be as pretty blue. much the same. Yeah. yeah. I think blue really hit it on the on the head there. All right. Now blue, I don't know if a lot of your fans know, although I'm sure they do. You're pretty celebratory about it. You're also a bona fide horror fan. And you're a big horror fan. And of course you performer at Terra Vault and you have spooky tattoos. Would you say that Batman Returns played a part in your love of horror, seeing that you saw it as as a young wee child? Absolutely. I remember coming home and we lived on the second floor of an apartment building. And I was just terrified that the penguin was going to be like flying with his little umbrella with the fucking black blood coming out of his mouth looking at me. When I watched horror movies, I always had like a little comfort that they didn't go after kids 
I remember one of the Jasons, like there was a kid sleeping and he just like left the kid alone and went for the teenagers. But like the penguins mission was murdering children. And that was kind of terrifying from like an early age on. So I would definitely include this as one of like the beginnings of my my horror obsession. You know, that oozing black goo that drips out of DeVito's mouth. I guess that was his idea. I was reading about the movie and he was like, what if we did this? What a weird guy. I love it. Danny DeVito, interestingly enough, is a horror obsessed creator of horror and has like a whole other side project that I think a lot of people who are familiar with Danny DeVito don't know about. But Danny DeVito actually makes gore films and has a whole production company where he churns out sort of old grindhousey type fun gore movies. For a while, he had a website up. I don't know if he still does, but, um, you know, that it is worth noting that he is a genuine fan of not just horror, but like gory, brutal horror. Would you say then, I mean, obviously we've been talking about the horror elements. You you talk about how this contributes to your interest in the genre. And something we talk about periodically are these movies that are gateway horror. Would you describe this as a gateway horror film? Yeah, I think it's horror that's been presented as like a Christmas movie. Like you have, like, it's not about Christmas, but you get the horror added in. It's disguised as a Batman movie. My dad and I used to watch reruns of the Adam West ones, and he was always a Batman fan. And I think they took me at four thinking this was a family-friendly film, which it was probably a little terrifying for a four-year-old. But yeah, I think it has the horror kind of disguised as family fun or Christmas movie or a superhero movie. Yeah. yeah, I think if you're four years old and you're going to see Batman Returns on the big screen, it's horror. Because yeah. in many ways, you're identifying with a lot of childlike imagery and fantasy. I think not only did Tim Burton provide a gateway for a lot of young people into being into horror, but really maybe more importantly, he created generations of goth people. You know, goth culture in many ways, for me, had its heyday in the 80s. And so by the time Tim Burton came along, I was already like a goth kid who loved that stuff. And I was able to appreciate things like you know, Batman Returns, but I was already goth. I grew up with Susie Sue, but it was wonderful to see kids going to see things like The Nightmare Before Christmas or Batman Returns or Sweeney Todd or Sleepy Hollow. Like that man, he's kept goth alive, you know, and well, not as much anymore, but hey, you know, he did his part when he needed to. So you have been groomed by Tim Burton, basically. I loved Tim Burton until he started relying more on CGI than practical effects. Yeah, when did Tim Burton jump the shark? I think everyone who's an original Tim Burton fan agrees. I think for me, it might have been Alice in Wonderland, where I just was kind of like, okay, enough. Was Alice in Wonderland before Charlie? I think it's after, actually. Well, both of those, maybe it's the one-two punch of those two movies where it was really like, come on, Tim, you're really letting us down. Things like Dark Shadows helped restore him a little bit to me, but it just wasn't a great movie. I liked the look of it, you know. What is he working on now? Because I, I just read Beetlejuice too. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Great title. While we're talking about the horror elements before we get too far away, because somehow over the course of this podcast discussion with both of our guests, a podcast committed to horror elements, we have not yet spoken about one of the bloodiest moments of 1992. And that's when the penguin bites the nose of that person. And 
I'm thinking of you at four years old seeing this in the theater. Let's talk about that moment because it's pretty jarring for a film that was supposed to be a family film, a summer release. Again, the penguin just scared the shit out of me and terrified me. I went to my grandma's a lot and she let me watch whatever. So I got like desensitized to horror at a very young age, but still, yeah, that was, yeah, crazy. When the movie came out, one of my aunts was complaining because she took one of my cousins to see it. And she was just like, this was not the Batman we grew up with. And I was like, well, you did see the one that they did a couple years ago where Jack Nicholson electrocutes a man until he's a burning corpse, right? Like, I think that they should have known this was not your grandma's Batman. I love it when parents become outraged. There's a viral video going around. I don't even know what the movie is, but this woman's yelling at this person at a box office. And I love that. Like she took her kid to see, oh God, I don't even know what it was, but it's something that's out right now. And she's very, very upset. And I think to myself, you know, you fucking idiot. Like, guess what? Filmmakers and artists don't have the responsibility to coddle your children. If you really care that much, watch the movie before you bring your kid to it. You know, in fact, like I, when my parents actually tried to, you know, pretend like they were doing something, they would, you know, watch something ahead of time. I mean, that all went out the window, you know, when I just started, you know, basically sneaking into movies and watching whatever I wanted. But there was a point where I remember my mother telling me I wasn't allowed to see poltergeist you know they had seen it and of course i was obsessed with it and she thought it was too scary for me but of course that only made me want to see it more your aunt not to throw her under the bus michael but it's really her problem yeah now you blue let's say that aunt tried to sue tim burton you (laughs) would be talking about it on your podcast Tell our listeners about your podcast and about your book, because you've had a pretty big couple of years. I have a podcast called Reading is Fundamental with my friend Dextra DeNovo or Jake. We met in law school. He does drag. I do leather drag. And we basically talk about topics in entertainment law for non-attorney audiences. And we try to bring like a fun queer perspective to it. And that's very just having a good time something that's accessible. And then I've also had the opportunity to write a book. It's called Blue Movie. It's about my life in adult entertainment and kind of transitioning from being a sex worker to an attorney. There's a lot of sex in it, a lot of drug use. Talk about my recovery journey, my relationship with my partner, Sean. And both of those are out there if your audience wants to check them out. Speaking of law and interpretations of things, here's a question that we can head off into the night on. Bruce Wayne. Is it possible that he's an ethical billionaire or no? Are there ethical billionaires? (laughs) Maybe Taylor Swift? No, and this kind of like popped up for me. I mean, he's like having all this damage to the city and property damage, but I don't get where his personal ethics are, especially in Batman Returns. Like there's this whole big deal about not killing Christopher Walken in the end and he needs to go to the cops, but like, halfway through the film, he straps dynamite to some dude and pushes him off a building. So I would say no. He kind of picks and chooses like who gets to live, who gets to die, and who gets his definition of justice. Where can people find you? Where should they access you? I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Same handle at Blue Bailey SF as in San Francisco or Stephen Ferris. Uh, Sent me up there. Twitter? I know. No, it's not called that anymore. No, we're calling it Twitter. We are not giving another unethical billionaire his way. I'm sorry. (laughs) I think people should go find you on Twitter for sure. I think it's hilarious that people just still call it Twitter. In fact, we should just all do that. Yeah, I agree. Well, Thank you so much, Blue. It was great talking about Batman Returns with you as well as uh, your journey with this movie. And 
happy holidays and happy whipping? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Blue. Thank you so much. And that was our conversation with the fantastic Blue Bailey. I have to tell you, Peaches, I really loved the context that Blue provided with the Catwoman connection to the BDSM community. Obviously, an arc of the conversation with both of our guests was sort of the dragginess of Batman Returns overall. But by digging deeper into that connection, going past the drag, going into the leather community, the rubber community, and why that empowerment from Selena Kyle's transformation into Catwoman could speak to someone in that way, I think is a really brilliant read of this film. It like makes sense, but to have someone like Blue articulate it is I think really crucial because it's one of those things where you could like just look at it and be like, oh yeah, of course. But here's someone who is part of that scene and understands the dynamics and he really laid it out and I'm so glad he did. Yeah, and as was revealed by myself during the interview, it was kind of like a mind-blown moment for me to hear that connection because it hadn't yet occurred to me. Of course I knew that Batman Returns was queer. Everything I love is queer, you know, and I understood that it was horror and that it was goth. But for whatever reason, as obvious as it is with Michelle Pfeiffer cracking that whip and wearing that that outfit, the sort of fetish part of it hadn't really occurred to me, which is so weird when you think about how clearly obvious it is. And that's why I revealed that it's pretty obvious that I had originally gone to Blue and offered Blue a spot as a guest on our cruising episode. And when Blue said, oh, you know, I think Blue likes that movie and it speaks to him. But I always say to our potential guests, like, we want you to love and be obsessed with the films, you know. And he was kind of like, man, I said, well, give me a list of movies. Well, now I realize our December releases, Michael, we've got a theme going on. This could have been our our Folsom month. You know, we've got a theme, a December theme of sort of fetish and leather and subversive sexuality. As you were speaking, I had sort of this epiphanal moment where it's like, well, are Batman Returns and Cruising that far apart? Not really, because what are they about? They're both about people who have an uncertainty in their day lives, who don a certain outfit and go out into the nightlife to become their truest selves. And, you know, that's really interesting because Pacino learns some things and boy, does Bruce Wayne learn some things. Absolutely. This has been a really great year for the Midnight Mass podcast. We have put out a lot of episodes. We sure Um, have. We have really upped our game over at the Patreon. We have a lot of mini mass available over there. We have a lot of videos and movies and things that are only available on the Patreon. We're going to be adding more. What we are doing very soon is uh, adding Jizzmopper, my senior thesis film, to the Patreon page. So if you've ever heard of Jizzmopper, Mopper and you're curious and you want to see it, sign up for our Patreon. And if sticking to the digital space is not enough, Peaches and I are actually hitting the road in 2024 as well. You'll be seeing us announce right. some live dates, including one at the top of January, which as of the time of this recording, we haven't fully revealed yet. So I don't know uh, if I will say anything more about it. Just keep your eyes on our links. But yeah, Peaches and I are going to be doing some more live shows, both near and far. So we're ready for 2024. I really appreciate you. And I'm really glad that you and I do this show together. It brings me a lot of joy. And, you know, it just feels nice to be wrapping up the 
year on such a positive note. Peaches, the feeling is very much mutual. I love that we are able to get together and talk about these things that we love and we get to celebrate them with people from our community week in, week out, and that we get to share this adventure together. I mean, who else but the true cult leader that is Peaches Christ would I want to go on this journey with? And here's one hell of a closer for you. If you too, dear listener, are a horny loose bottom who fantasizes <laughs> about cracking a whip while sitting on the face of the penguin, more specifically his nose, well, then you do maybe one of the children of the popcorn now. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs>